Good evening and welcome to Point of View. I'm Chris Berg. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Friday evening. We start tonight with the absolute just booming American economy. I got to ask you a question as we get started here. Tired of winning yet? Because I know I'm not. Making America great again? I'm loving it. Here's a tweet from President Trump from earlier today. He put this out. It's a, a kind of a headline or a capture from DrudgeReport.com. It says, hey, we are the envy of the world. Unemployment at a 40 nine-year low, wages are going up. And the great news there is wages are actually going up for the lowest income people the fastest or at the highest rate. You know what that means? It means that blue-collar workers are actually seeing their wages grow at the fastest rate out there right now today. Stock market rallies continue to go. And, of course, President Trump excited about this as we head into 2020. His approval rating now at 50%. I'm sure you've been watching other news throughout the day, and it is just, it's almost like fall off your chair funny trying to watch all these Trump haters spin all this great economic news. And I cannot wait to see what obviously the 2020 Democrat candidates are going to say about this booming economy to try to go out there and win on, I don't know what, the Green New Deal, how they're going to regulate cow flatulence or whatever it is they're going to try to propose out there. We'll see what they say. Also then, so President Trump wakes up, has these incredible job numbers. That's happening. Then he sits in the Oval Office after about an hour phone call with Putin. He had a phone call today with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Here's some of what President Trump said from the Oval Office about the call. Can you address the election meddling issues that came up in the Mueller report with Mr. Putin today? We discussed it. He actually uh, sort of smiled when he said uh, something to the effect that it started off as a mountain, and it ended up being a mouse. But he knew that because he knew there was no collusion whatsoever. Uh, so uh, pretty much that's what it was. <laughs> I think he said to President Trump, hey, how about that collusion delusion? <laughs> I got to tell you, folks, you know President Trump. You can tell he's in a good mood there. He's got to be somewhat gloating. Even the New York Times put out a piece last night, which We've been telling you this now for a long time here in Point of View, but there was something fishy going on from the get-go on this uh, quote-unquote collusion delusion. And the New York Times shared last night that, yes, the FBI did put an agent, a CI, confidential informant, in London to meet with George Papadopoulos. You may remember a while back I said to you, hey, look, watch what's happening. And the reason right now that you see the Democrats go so hard to try to destroy Bill Barr's because they know that he, if he really follows through and investigates the investigators, you're not only going to see, as I've said before now many times, James Clapper, uh, crazy John Brennan, liar and leaker James Comey, probably going to be in orange jumpsuits. I don't know exactly when, but sooner rather than later. But also there's a thing called the Five Eyes, where we've got an agreement with five different nations around the world to share intelligence. Well, as this information starts to become uh, more and more transparent, more and more re uh, relevant, because as we heard recently as well, President Trump said in an interview that he's going to declassify not only the FISA warrants, but a lot, lot more. I think you're going to see places like Australia, the UK and whatnot kind of go, we probably shouldn't have done that back in 2016. Just wait for that news to come out. What I'm hearing from some sources right now is next Thursday could be a very, very big day. I don't want to get ahead of my skis. All I'm going to say is just 
Wait and see what happens next Thursday. Could be some pretty shocking news there. All right, I want to get to our uh, second part of our interview with Governor Doug Burgum. He was kind enough to give us a lot of time yesterday, and so we're going to break it into two parts. And one of the big topics that kept coming up, and a lot of you emailed about this because we, we asked him about it, and that's where we're going to start tonight, but about the fact that he signed the bill that sort of handcuffs or hamstrings our state auditor from doing performance audits. So you're going to find his answer to that tonight. Also, is Governor Burgum running in 2020? Is he going to do that or not? What keeps Governor Burgum up at night as he looks out into the future of North Dakota? We talk about the TR library, VFM diversion, and much, much more. So you mentioned it before about, hey, Chris, there's challenges with how the, you know, the budgets are being proposed to people or, or maybe the transparency around them or whatnot. Um, and I don't know if this would be the right purview for him or not, but then you went and you sort of tied the hands of our state auditor. So maybe an auditor would be a good idea to go out there and have more transparency, which you mentioned is a good yep. thing. I think he's trying to do that. Why tie his hands and not give him more flexibility? Well, let's be clear. There no hand tying uh, on the my legislator. part. Well, you signed it. You could have vetoed it. Well, it, I, I could have potentially done a line item veto of a bill that passed the Senate unanimously uh, and passed the House with a, with a veto-proof majority. I could have done that. Uh, but let's just say that it had broad bipartisan support for the whole thing. Uh, but I don't really see the hand tying. I, I hear a lot of stuff on social media, but the auditor's budget went up. It went from 56 FTEs to 58, and it went up by $1.3 million. So a more, more funding than what was even initially recommended uh, for, that, uh, for that agency. And they have unfettered ability to go do all the fiscal audits they've ever done. And it's only one small portion on performance audits where they're saying, hey, please check in with us before you do a performance audit. But you ran, obviously, in a campaign saying, hey, guys, we're going to buck against the good old boys club. Wouldn't it have been more consistent or in alignment with that if you would at least veto that? Maybe maybe they override your veto, but at least you say, okay, I said we're going to buck the good old boys club. I want more performance audits. I'm going to line yay or nay or... Well, I also ran on the idea that we're going to have, you know, smart, efficient government. Uh, and I think, again, where you, you take a look at a fiscal audit, which is the primary function uh, of an auditing function to uncover that, uh, you know, the performance audit is a secondary uh, capability. Uh, and there's been a regular reporting relationship between the, the legislative agency that hears those audit reports uh, and, uh, and the auditor's office. That, that, exists, right. that okay. exists and has been there. Uh, and the auditor can still do performance audits. He's just got to check in with the legislature and say, hey, this is, this is where I want to be. Uh, this is where I want to be spending got my it. time. Uh, because that also, the legislature has clear authority to do appropriation. And if they appropriate money to 57 agencies, say, auditor shows up to do a performance audit, the agency has to pay the auditor for it. So part of the concern, I mean, I get the legislators on here that supported it, they would tell you that this was about, uh, they would also say this is about fiscal accountability because, hey, we appropriated the money and we want to we know that the money is going for what we appropriated to, not for some audit that we may or may not have approved. So just for TV time's sake, I want to yep. go through a few items, yes. you know, fairly rapidly, but I always enjoy a conversation. So uh, what's that? We love the lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> so what, the feedback that I've been getting about the TR library, and again, this is, these are not my words, it's the feedback I get to say, hey, if Governor Burgum showed as much passion about this library as he did for seniors or kids, it'd be amazing, you know, what could go on in this state. What's your reaction to that? Well, I, I think I've got a lot of passion uh, for all the topics that maybe that sees me come to work every day, you know, understands uh, what I care about. I care about people with addiction. I care about people that are trapped in our 
in in our in incarceration and trapped in our in our system, and we got to get them out of that. Uh, I care, about, you know, have a lot of passion about what's the, the horrible things that are you know happening in some of our low income. But I think publicly things. it looked like wow, I had so much um, time and energy put into a, a library that may or may not come to fruition, but yet we still have a lot of challenges. Well, I think publicly because what, uh, you know, what happened was it became the false choice. It was like, well, if we've got money to spend in the library, what about this? But at the end of the day, when this thing passed by wide margins in both parts of the legislature, it passed because people said, we've taken care of long-term care. We've taken care of low income. We've taken care of uh, behavioral health, largest increase we've ever taken care of. We've, we've going to reach 10,000 per pupil payment for the first time ever for K-12. Uh, we had big increases in higher education. I think at the end of the day, they said that's all been taken care of. What's this thing about the library? Oh, this is a deal where we take $50,000 and put it in an endowment that stays at the state, and then somebody comes along and gives us $100 million of outside capital. Oh, this is going to be the thing that has higher return on investment than anything we did the whole session because it'll also diversify the economy and drive, uh, you know, drive tourism in Western North Dakota. It's going to tie in with K-12, uh, tie in with higher education. Roosevelt Conservation Scholars could be as big as the Truman or the Rhodes Scholars emanating from right here. So this is a lot bigger than a building. But part of my passion was, I like to say, because the legislature has supported this in 2013, 2015, 2017. So library is not my idea. It's been around and it has been funded by the legislature. But what was different this time is the window was closing. You know, so if I was anything on this thing, I was Paul Revere uh, basically saying, look, this is going to go to another state. We're going to miss the opportunity. But right now we had this administration, meaning the Department of Interior, the National Park Service, a huge organization called the National Park Foundation that is willing to participate, uh, major donors, uh, support from the local community, support from DSU and Dickinson. We had everybody lined up for the first time this idea has, you know, ever been around. We had all the arrows pointing in the right direction. And the legislature, in a lowest risk thing they could do, is set aside an endowment to ourselves. It stays at the state land board, and it creates a starting line. It creates a starting line to see if the private sector will raise $100 million. If nobody raises $100 million, money stays with the state. There's a low risk, high return. Uh, kind of a no-brainer to me, and I didn't want us to miss out on a no-brainer opportunity because two years from now, it won't be. You can't build right. a presidential library without the support of the family. If President Obama is alive, he can say, "I like South Chicago." He approves it. President Clinton, he can say that. The Roosevelts, we have the great grandson Theodore Roosevelt the fifth, uh, the grandson Teddy Roosevelt the fourth. Uh, and we've got other family members who have said, we support building this in North Dakota at the Theodore Roosevelt National Park. It's, it's the key, the tie-in is to the park. So we've got the family connection. Two other states are trying to pull that, they're trying to pull mm -hmm. them and saying, hey, come do it in our state. So this wasn't something that was going to be around when we came back in two years. So I, you know, courageous legislators to say, uh, to stand up and, and support and vote for this thing? Because it's a little bit, I mean, it's like, is it, why do we want a library? I mean, if somebody came up to you 10 years ago and said, do you want an iPhone? You'd say, what is that, <laughs> right? I mean, you wouldn't know what it is, right? And if you hadn't never met Steve Jobs, right. well, now, you know, a, a presidential library is not a library. It's a tourism factory. And, and if we can help attract the capital to build a tourism factory, if we can help attract the capital to build soybean processing plants, I'm all about attracting capital and talent to North Dakota. That's what we do. And this is one of the ways to do it. And this funding mechanism of creating an endowment that's held by the state where only the earnings go off for the thing, and then that's matched two for one, we should use this model again. I would say, I would say, hey, if people have an idea, send us an idea about 
your next thing because this is the kind of legacy fund projects we could do every two years uh, that could be populated that would be, again, the highest highest return on investment of anything we do in any legislative system. You just reminded me of something that I, w I wanted to ask you, and it slipped my mind, but then you reminded me. So the, the soybean processing plant, you know, we put $50 million in a library. You say there's money there. And I love what Senator Hoban said when Secretary Purdue was in town is, hey, guys, let's create our own destiny, right? Let's yes. grow the bean, take it to the plant in Spearwood, send it over to Dickinson, make oil, and send it out to, ta to California. Yes. Why isn't the state, I mean, we've got our own mill, we've got our own bank, why isn't the state making some kind of capital investment in this? Well, that, that is a, uh, uh, it had been uh, on the private side with a co-op from Minnesota, they were working their way through, they thought it was going to happen, now there's a question of if it may not, if it doesn't, uh, then I think there's an opportunity again for the private sector, private-public partnership ought to be on the table. Because like you say, How would that look? Like I, that's... Well, I think it would all it would have to be structured in a way where it makes sense for taxpayers, makes sense for investors, but for sure it would make sense for our farmers because <laughs> our basis is too high. And then when we're trapped yeah. selling to one customer called China, uh, you know, and just they're not buying, and they're not buying. I mean, then, then again, I mean, the reason why we created the mill and elevator in the bank was because we had commodities that were dependent on things outside of our control. Here we are. A hundred years later, and we're still in the same spot. <laughs> so I'm emailing you right now a suggestion, as you just mentioned, because maybe I'm missing something. And you know, finance is a lot better than I do. But it just seems like there's a real opportunity with this. There thing. is a real opportunity, and we've got, and with tools like the bank and other programs we have. I mean, Cass County is the number one soybean producing yes. county in America. And if you'd have said that to somebody in Iowa, Indiana, or Illinois ten years ago, they said you're crazy. But this is what we have. We have amazing soil. We got amazing farmers. We have this, and we get to ship it to Dickinson Refinery and. Make more money there yeah, too. Yeah, the offtake from Jamestown <laughs> would go to the refinery in Dickinson, which would then go to California. So if you've got the supply, all the soybeans, and you've got the customer that's willing to take the offtake, that's when business models really start to work. And so this seems like something we should be able to get done. How much private equity do you need? Maybe I have some money I can I can hand over yeah. to this. Uh, two two more things, maybe three quickly. Um, obviously for Fargo, the FM diversion. Uh, you know, Ed Schaefer came out and said, "Hey, this thing might be cost prohibitive at this point." I guess your reaction to that, and then where does this diversion end up? Well, the uh, we're very fortunate to be where we are today because this project had completely stopped and stalled uh, because of uh, you know a set of people. You know, I would say protests uh, to the thing, uh, and the thing got restarted again with Governor Date and myself, and we had five full day long meetings. We included uh, the opposition voices as part of the task force. They're at the table. And we had uh, essentially a, a structured open mic for five full days of meeting where everybody had a chance to come up and talk about the thing. And, and, the, and we had a very, I said it was, it was like those, you know, Chinese uh, martial arts movies where you got rings on a string that are moving. And we had about five different strings. We had to line up and yeah. shoot an arrow all the way through them because we had to maintain federal authorization, which is hard. Uh, we had to, you know, keep the Army Corps at the table. We had to meet every Minnesota law. We had to meet the North Dakota laws. Uh, we had to accommodate both upstream and downstream interests. Uh, we had to try to, you know, as best you could, make sure that it, uh, uh, you know, was stayed engineeringly feasible in an incredibly flat area that has uh, four rivers coming together. This is not just a Red River diversion. Right. It's a Red River Wild Rice Cheyenne Maple diversion, <clears throat> uh, and it's in a rapidly growing metropolitan area where land prices are going up. You know, how do you make all that stuff work? And coming out of that task force, we achieved a permit from Minnesota, and then coming out of that, the injunction was lifted. I mean, those were two things that people said was, weren't possible. So now we're at a point uh, where the state of North Dakota stepped <clears throat> up to do a, a larger portion. 
but let's be clear, let's not get hung up on numerators versus denominators. The, <clears throat> the commitment of $750 million from the state is a large number, but this protects 175,000 people, $20 billion of property value, 20% of the K-12 students in the state of North Dakota, uh, and, uh, and is therefore the 55, 55 K through 12 buildings plus an entire university plus a bunch of medical centers. This is the most tax efficient from the state standpoint of anything mm -hmm. that's ever done. Even at 750, we aren't even up to 30% match and we have other cities in North Dakota that have received 65, 70 and 80% match from the state for flood protection. And so this is the lowest match for the highest ratio of protection. And so if we think the numerator is high, we got to add a denominator, which is per capita, per value of property, per square mile, uh, per mat, per percentage match, and then this thing drops to the to the very best. So this is this is two more things, sir. Yeah. Um, as you look out, you know, the, the session obviously wrapped up, the budget out to 2021. As our governor, and you look out into 2021, what keeps you up at night? Anything right now? I mean, well, is there concerns that you see like that? Like that? I, I nothing. I mean. I've always slept well, so there's not a lot of stuff that keeps me up, but I wake up pretty energized because A, it's an honor to serve, and B, this is a job where you can make a difference in people's lives. And we got more work to do. We got more work, we have more work to do uh, you know, across our urban areas, our rural areas, our tribal areas, I mean, across education, healthcare. Uh, there's so many things, and the, and the future is so exciting. I mean, technology, economics, and demographics are changing and disrupting every industry. Higher ed, K-12, they're all in a period of disruption. And we need to make sure that we are, have got the leadership and the governance models that allows us to take advantage of those changes where, where North Dakota could shoot ahead to the top of the list in just about anything. We could have the best K-12 system in the country. We have the best, we could have the best universities. It's, it's not gonna be because we don't have enough money. We will have the money to do it. It's whether we have the political will and whether we have the, the systems that allow us to move fast enough to take care of the opportunities. You said there's a lot of work to do. With that being said, are you running in 2020? Well, today's not a day for an announcements, but uh, I, I think, you know, you, you know me, people know me, and they know that, uh, you know, Catherine and I are incredibly honored to serve. Brent Sanford is uh, quite possibly the best lieutenant governor in the nation uh, and been an incredible partner through all this. And uh, we're excited every day when we come to work. And uh, we'll, uh, and I'd say if, if we had to, if you'd say which way you're leaning, I'd say we're leaning in, but we're not making announcements. Hey, I might have an idea too, another email I would send you. Since you are being forced now to get your salary, maybe donate that to the soybean crushing plant. <laughs> it's great to have you here, okay. Governor. We all appreciate right. all the hard work. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.